Uh, we've been studying the book of Acts together, and um, last week we learned about the devotion of the early church, what the early church was devoted to, and uh, we stood on 242 to 47 throughout that whole uh, time together last week and kind of focused on that and flushed that out, and uh, it was really, really cool. Um, if you miss a weekend here, or if you'd just like to check out maybe where we've been in God's Word through this, the Acts study, man, you can go to our website, and, and all our sermons and, and the transcripts and everything are published there. So you can get access there, and that's really a cool way to kind of keep up to date if you miss. Because, you know, it's, summer's coming too, man. I mean, summer's like the worst time of the year for church attendance. Uh, hopefully, when you guys decide to ditch, you take Jesus with you, you know, uh, but summertime, it's like so hit and miss, and so, but we want to publish our stuff so that you can be up to date and, and still continue in our studies and stuff like that. So you can go to our website and get our sermons there. This morning, we're actually going to begin chapter three. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the thing is, is that none of that clapping or hoorays are actually a positive thing. That's a criticism <laughs> towards my teaching style, which is really slow and methodical and, and whatever, so thank you for the false applause. Um, yeah, so we're going we're gonna to be, we're gonna be starting to dive into, into chapter 3, and I don't know how long we're going to be there. Um, <laughs> how do you know? Have you read through it and seen it? Here's the thing, you know, I love to teach the word line by line, but sometimes the word has to be taught in massive paragraphs because there's one theme one topic, and so to break those up is really challenging. And so I might do something that I don't normally do, and that's teach larger sections. And there'll be more false rejoicing and clapping and stuff. But, <laughs> but anyways, we're going to start uh, chapter 3 today, and I'm excited about that. We're going to be focusing in on verses 1 to 10. There should be some kind of clapping, because it's not normally, I mean, normally it's like one verse. Yeah, hey, thank you. Uh, don't make me, I have to turn my own volume up and down. Don't make me clap for myself here. Um, yeah, so we're going to be looking at 1 to 10. And uh, what I've noticed about the entire chapter 3 is that it, it's, it's really neat. It's, I don't know if I'd call it broken into segments, but it's like it begins with this incredible, miraculous account, and then it transitions into this incredible sermon that ties the miracle to Jesus and the gospel um, for those of you who were with us weeks and weeks ago when we were studying Peter's sermon, we noticed that you had this incredible miracle on the day of Pentecost with all these people speaking the gospel and the, the wondrous things of God in all these foreign languages to these people who were from all over the world. And there, so there was this, this, this great, incredible miracle, and then Peter followed it up with an explanation as to what had, was taking place, and he tied it to prophecy, and he tied it to Jesus, and he tied it to the gospel, and then he called for people to repent. Now, and that was in chapter 2 now, and that was most of chapter 2. So what we're going to see here is, is something very similar to that again. And, uh, and it's, it's really good. It's going to be a treat for us today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at 1 to 10. Let's, let's go ahead and read that together. Take your Bibles and flip right over to Acts 3. And we're going to read that. I'll read it out loud, and then I'll, I'll pray again. And then I'll, we'll begin to examine it together. Let's see. And uh, really excited that I've got glasses coming. 
I, I normally wear glasses. Some of you know that. My wife's like, yes, that's why it's been hard around the house. Right. Well, no, I don't want to wear yours. I don't want to see six Bibles in front of me, for crying out loud. I'd be like a fly looking at this thing. But I normally wear glasses, and I, I screwed the lenses up, and apparently I don't think seeing's all that important, so I took about six months to get new ones. So I'm going to be able to read right pretty quick here. Well, I'm going to give it a shot. Okay, there it is. Yeah, see, I have to... Yeah, that's even worse. That's a big text right there, man. You're kind of young to have to have that size 25 font, brother. Um, All right, 3, 1 to 10. It says, now Peter and John, okay, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, uh, the ninth hour, he says. And Luke says, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Uh, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And we look at four, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Um, But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, But what I do have, I give to you. And then he says this incredible thing. He says, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise and walk. And then in 7, it says, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Nine, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And then he closes out this beautiful little section here with this last line. He says, and they, that's the crowds, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Father, thank you for the reading of your word, and then again, the reading of your word. Thank you for this great passage, God. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your truth, God, that we may be changed and transformed by your truth, God, that we may be made more into the image of your Son, which is the goal of sanctification. That's what you're aiming to do with us, is to generate the image of your Son in us and through us. And the word taught does that very thing. And so, Holy Spirit, help us to focus now. Help us to put away with the distractions of this life and all of the things that might cripple us now in this moment where we might miss what you're going to say. Help us to be focused here, Jesus. Help us to uh, develop a greater heart of love and gratitude uh, for you and a heart of love and charity towards those outside of the church, and and importantly, towards those who are inside of the church. Father, have your way here today, Lord Jesus. Be glorified through this teaching. Guard my lips and my mouth, that I may only preach your words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and begin to to take a look at each line, and we'll be looking at a a couple of chunks too, but let's begin with verse 1. You guys ready to go? We're going to take a look at this passage. I'm pretty pumped about that. Can you tell? My voice is, but my body's not moving a whole lot. I'm afraid the mic's going to make noise and whatever. So, but I'm, I'm pumped. 
I'm pumped up. I love the Word of God. Let's take a look at it. We're going to look at verse 1 first. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. The first thing that we see here, uh, according to Luke's account, is that Peter and John uh, were together. And according to the New Testament, these two men spent a considerable amount of time with one another. Uh, In the Gospels, if you look at the Gospel accounts, you'll see that they were partners in a fishing business, Luke 5.10. You'll see that they were members of Jesus' inner circle of the 12 disciples. An inner circle means that Jesus had these little concentrical circles of leaders even within the 12. It wasn't just the 12, but he had guys that were closer to him in that 12, and then guys that were not as close, and that guys were somewhat close. And so um, if we look at the Gospels, we see that these two particular guys were kind of on that inner circle. They were kind of Jesus' right-hand guys. Matthew 17, 1, Mark 5, 37, Luke 8, 51, and there's a number of other passage that il- passages that illustrate that. These guys were also the preparers of the last Passover supper or the Lord's Supper. They were the ones that went into town and got the meal together and got it all prepared, and then Jesus and the rest of the guys showed up later on. That's Luke 22, 8. Um, These two guys were the disciples out of the 12, and I think it was 11 at the, obviously it was 11 at that point, but they were the two that actually followed Jesus to the high priest's house after he was arrested. The other nine, obviously Judas was off doing his thing. He had betrayed the Lord. The other nine had fled and ran for the hills. They were petrified. They were scared. They were filled with anxiety, and they left. And these two guys, Peter and John, actually followed at some distance and kind of watched things transpire. And we know this to be true because God's holy word declares it, but we also see that great account of where Peter denied the Lord three times. And how did he do that? Well, he was following, and he was... In the the courts of the high priest, and young lady called him on his following Jesus, and he denied him three times or whatever. So they were two guys that actually followed behind while the rest bolted and bailed. And then they were the first of the male disciples to visit the tomb after the resurrection. Peter came over and checked it out. John came over and checked it out. And they looked in the empty tomb, and they were astonished and pretty incredible. So that's John 20. Uh, two. And the point being that we can see that these two guys spent some time together. They spent some time together. As we study the preceding or the following chapters in Acts, uh, more particularly the early ones, we will see them ministering together, just as we're seeing them together in this particular passage. When we look at 4.13 and 4.19 and 8.14 in, in the book of Acts, we see them together doing ministry together. Now, which is cool. They had a camaraderie. They had companionship. They were friends. They were mutual sharers of the gospel, and they did ministry together. Really, really cool. Now, why were Peter and John together in this particular instance? The text says that they were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Now, going up sort of suggests that this was a custom of theirs, Going up is like saying, yeah, it's something that I, I, I do all the time, and I'm just going up and doing what I repetitively do. And so going up has that sort of flavor to it in the original language. It's something that they were persistent at and, and consistent at, and, and Luke actually affirms that 
uh, back in 246 where we were before where it says that the early church went day by day attending the temple together. And so going up means that they, they went periodically, probably every day. They probably went a couple of different times during the day. But they went up and it was a habit of theirs to go into the temple to pray. Now, we must not be mistaken in believing that they were going up there to follow the old religion, that they were going up there to sacrifice animals and to have those blood of those animals remove their sins, and, and they weren't stuck in this pattern of old Judaism and old religion. Uh, I, I think that when you have the temple there, and it's known as this headquarters uh, for God in the world, even as a Christian, that would be a really cool place to go and worship God, would it not? You may not show up there and do what the other Jews are, are doing. I mean, you, you might find yourself in Israel someday. What a blessed trip that would be. And you might go on that temple mount and just praise God and worship him. That doesn't make you a Muslim. That doesn't make you a Jew. And so they weren't there to, oh, we got to do the sacrifices again. You know, Peter, did you bring the goat? You know, oh, no, I, I forgot the goat. Uh, let's go buy a dove. You know, it, wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with that. This was just a cool place to go and worship God. And so that's what they were doing. They were going during the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And they did it pretty regularly. Now, the daily schedule in Jewish culture back then, uh, it, it, it was pretty interesting. They, they didn't do what we do here. Like a full day to them was like 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. You know, our day goes all the way over to you know, to midnight, then it transitions into morning, into the next day and all that. Their, their daily calendar was like on a 12-hour gig. They didn't have like a 24-hour. And so what you have there is you have a day, and a day is 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Now, during the normal day, they had three special prayer times. Three special prayer times they had in that culture. They had morning prayer, which was called, and you'll see this in Scripture all the time in the New Testament, the third hour. The third hour would be 9 a.m. That's three hours after 6 a.m., right? Three hours after the day began. So they had morning prayer, the third hour, 9 a.m. And then they had afternoon prayer, which was the sixth hour, which was at 12 noon. And then they had what's called evening prayer. And evening prayer was the ninth hour. That would have been 3 p.m. And interestingly, that is the hour that sacrifices were brought to be slaughtered for the removal of people's sins. And so what we have in our text is these two gentlemen going up during that last hour of prayer. They're going up at 3 o'clock, which obviously, if they only have a 12-hour day and 6 o'clock is like their midnight, then 3 p.m. is their evening. Really, wouldn't that be weird doing your whole evening thing at 3 o'clock? We do that around holidays when we have everyone over and we eat the world's largest dinner at 3, and then you feel like absolute crud, and then you need to eat another large meal at 9. Do you guys do that at your houses? Some of you are probably going to do that tomorrow, right? You're going to barbecue, you're going to throw down, it's going to be insane, you're going to put Dickies that just opened out of business because your barbecue slaps, and you're going to fill yourselves at like 3 o'clock, and it's just the weirdest thing. And, and who doesn't like to eat at 3? I love it. I like to eat at every hour. It shows, but, right? So this is an interesting thing. So these guys are going up during the evening prayer time, during the evening sacrifice, and that would have been at 3 o'clock. Now, this is where it gets good. Interestingly, the crucifixion account in Mark 15 
shows that Jesus was nailed to the cross during morning prayer at the third hour, and darkness fell on the land during afternoon prayer, the sixth hour, and Jesus died during evening prayer, the ninth hour, which is where the sacrifices were made. The same time that Jesus is dying on the cross, thousands upon thousands are offering their lambs in hopes that their sins would be forgiven. The same time that that's taking place, he was outside of that place, outside of the city gates, being sacrificed on a cross. Now, what's so incredible is that they were, the Jews have been hoping for a deliverer. They still are today. And at that particular moment, during those prayer times, they would come and pray like crazy that God would deliver them. And at the same time that they're praying that prayer during that evening sacrifice, the deliverer, let's say it like this, God is actually answering their prayer because the deliverer is on the cross being delivered. And yet because of sin, obstinacy, ignorance, they had no idea what was happening and how God was answering their prayer. And even today they reject it, the majority of them. I can't help but, but think about how many millions and millions of people, probably billions obviously, in the world today that are praying to God for a deliverer. Every Orthodox Jew, that's in the millions, friends. Every Muslim, that's in the billions, friends. Every other religious system, they're all praying to God for a deliverer. And friends, the good news is, is that the deliverer has been delivered. God has already answered that prayer. And for those of us that know that and realize that and have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, who believe in the deliverer, that's a hallelujah. That's amazing. But for so many, they're still missing it, that God has already answered the prayer by sending His only begotten Son to live a perfect life of righteousness, to obey the law perfectly, to do what was impossible for us, to do what we could not do, and then to do something else that we could not do, and that was to take all the sins, all of your muck and mire, all of your junk, all of your sin and nastiness and dirtiness, take it upon himself, trade his perfect righteousness for your sin, and then die a bloody horrific death on the cross. The prayer has been answered question is, will we be the ones that know this and understand this? Will we be the ones that will step out of this place every week and share the good news with others? It's a matter of life and death. The prayer has been answered. Your deliverer came. You just got to believe that. Repent of your sin. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that he died, was buried, and rose again. I wonder if there's anyone here in our midst today. We have new people that are seeking a deliverer. Friend, he came. The work is done. Believe him. Trust him. Repent of your sin. Peter and John are going up to the temple during evening prayer. The ninth hour as was their custom. Now let's take a look at 2. 
and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple, it says. As Peter and John approached one of the entrances, and there were several different entrances. This one was called the beautiful gate. As they approached this entrance to the temple, they noticed a lame man, lame beggar, uh, being carried and then dropped off in a particular spot. Uh, it, it's interesting because Luke notes something here that, that, that has benefit. It's a great nugget of truth. And it says that the man had been lame from birth. It doesn't say that he was injured in a brick-laying job or he was racing camels down at the track and flew off and jacked himself up. It, it doesn't say any of that. It says that this particular guy was lame from birth, meaning he had never walked before, never had the ability to walk, didn't know what walking was like, saw it all his life and hoped and prayed and wished that he could walk, but could never do so. He was bound to a mat from infancy all the way to however old he was. And so he was lame from birth, and that is going to play a big role later on as we move through the text. Now, it says that the lame beggar was put at this neat name, and that is the beautiful gate, and it says daily, every day. This particular time that he was being placed at this beautiful gate would have been optimum for a beggar because it was where the Jews brought their offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. This particular entrance, the beautiful gate, was optimum because of the amount of traffic that went through it to get into the temple area where they could make their offerings, where they could put their money in those trumpet-shaped dispensers or receivers, where they could come and bring their sacrifices. And so this is a tremendous place to beg for alms. High traffic, and you're catching people as they're going into worship, which means that people are probably going to be filled with some joy, probably going to be a little bit more sensitive to those around them, probably going to be a little bit more compassionate towards them. We're going to worship the Lord. This is great. Here you go, pal. Right? This guy knows to catch these folks at the optimum time. And so he's being dropped at this high traffic place when worship's about to take place. And if he's been there every day doing the same thing for a long time, it sounds to me like it's working. Like people are being generous and, and taking care of some of his basic needs. William Barclay said something really cool about this text. He said, such a place, okay, the beautiful gate, such a place was considered the best of all positions because when people are on their way to worship God, they are disposed to be generous to others. And I think that's exactly what we have playing out. Optimum place, optimum time. We're talking... Remember, this is, happening at the, this is happening during evening prayer where the offerings and stuff were being made, not during the earlier times. Those times were probably cool, but they weren't as cool as this time because people are bringing stuff with them. And so this guy was there, and he was seated, and every day he came back at the same time, and probably a handful of people, maybe some of his friends, uh, carried him to his normal spot so that he could beg. Now, that kind of reminds me of the paraplegic man that was brought and lowered through a roof by four of his friends. Remember that great story in the gospel. It may be that this guy is a similar scenario where he was crippled, he couldn't walk, and maybe his friends brought him and dropped him off there. It said that 
says that he was placed there. So somebody put him there, and it was probably people that cared for him, family, friends, what have you. Now look at three. And he's sitting there, imagine. And, and I, don't, I don't even know if he could sit. Maybe, maybe he was reclining or laying there, but he was there, and he was watching as people were entering through this entrance. He's watching. And then it says in three, he, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. The lame beggar noticed Peter and John as they approached the gate. It says that he asked to receive alms. He probably said, can you guys help me out with a little cash? I mean, we don't, and that would have been Aramaic, but we, we don't know. I mean, he might have just said, can you help a brother out? He might have had a little sign that said, can't work for food, help a brother out, right? We always see those ones here that say, will work for food. I doubt very seriously he had one, and I see a guy at Costco all the time, and he's got one that says, I'll just be honest with you, I need a beer. I don't think he had that. I don't think he would, you know, I'll just be honest with you, I'm not going to lie, I'm not interested in food, I'm interested in Budweiser, you know. He didn't have anything like that. The guy was just sitting there, and he was asking those who passed by, and now he's asking Peter and John, can I get something from you? Can you help me out? Look at how Peter and John responded to him in verses 4 to 6. And just so you know, whenever I see that, I'll be honest with you, I just need beer, I get a kick out of that, but I'm less inclined to give money. Am I going to be judged because I gave money and he went and bought a tall boy? I don't know. But I'd rather go get him something to eat. I don't really want to feed his addiction, even though he's going to do whatever he can to get what he needs. But I am inclined to help those people, but I usually bring them food, and then I've had some that have been so thankful, and then I've had some that just said, keep it. You asked for food, money for food, and then I brought you food, and now you don't want it? So you didn't want food. Well, yeah. All righty then. No soup for you. Uh, <laughs> all right. Now look at how they responded to him in four. We're going to actually look at four to eight, right? And Peter directed his gaze at him. Okay, he looked at him. He focused on him as did John, both of them did, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. And then he says this, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong they could support his weight and then it says in eight and leaping up he's like a gazelle and leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God now there's some really interesting things here obviously the miracle and all that but what I thought was really cool was the fact that when this guy fixed his attention on them Peter and John looked at him and then they said look at us. Now, we just read that the guy noticed them. He saw them, so he was already looking at Peter and John. So why did they say, if he's already looking at them, look at us? I think this was Peter's way of saying, do we look like we have money? These guys were humble Galilean fishermen. These guys didn't have any money. In fact, they had been off the job for a couple of years because they left 
their father, they left the fishing business to follow Jesus, to become disciples. And so these guys didn't have any money. There would have been nothing about their appearance that would have revealed that they were wealthy. Nobody had a Rolex stone-faced watch on or whatever you want to... They, they, these guys were humble fishermen who were following Jesus, Jesus, who had forsaken just about everything to do so. And so as they're walking up, these guys are wearing rags. And so this guy's saying, can you give me something? And it's like Peter saying, look at us. Do I look like I got something I could hook you up with? I don't have diddly squat. I was actually going to ask you if you had a sandwich. Do you have any falafel? I mean, it's like, no, we, guys, guy, do, look at us. Do we look like we'd have something to give to you? I think that's what he means here. I think that's what he's saying. Peter was drawing his attention to their appearance because they didn't have anything on them that would make it look like they had something that they could give. They had average, maybe below average clothing, whatever it is. These guys were humble fishermen following Christ, fishers of men now. They didn't have anything. They didn't have the Gucci bag on them or anything. Here's, let me open up my coast man perch, my, my, my coach man purse, and give you a C note. You know, they didn't have anything on them. This guy didn't have any money. Look at us. We got nothing. What are you talking about? And then the lame beggar still asked them for something. He still sought to receive something from them, even though they didn't look like they had anything to give. And I, I suppose when you're that desperate, and maybe some of us have been, that you'll, you're going to be persistent, even though it may look like somebody doesn't have anything. They're up walking around. They've got clothing on their backs. They probably had more than this guy. Obviously, they had the use of their legs. They had probably better clothing than him. I mean, this guy rolled around in the dirt all day long. And so he still asks them, can you give me something? Now, lame beggar basically fixes his attention on them, even though they pointed out that they really didn't have anything to give, and they actually verbalize that. But as he's fixing his attention on them, hoping to receive something, anything. Peter said to him, I don't have any treasure, pal. I have, and he says it by saying, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. The lame beggar's eyes must have widened. His ears probably perked up. He probably figured they had something hidden on him. Who knows? And then Peter offered him something far greater than a few coins which would have bought a meal or two, which would have sustained him maybe for the remainder of that day. Maybe bought himself a dinner with it or something like that. He offered him something far greater of far greater value. He said to him, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. Peter offered this man the greatest gift this particular man could have been offered. In the name of Jesus. Now it's highly probable that Peter remembered the words of Jesus as he made this lame beggar this incredible offer. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 12 to 14. Jesus said this, truly, truly, I mean it is what he's saying, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. We know Jesus did a lot of healing and a lot of incredible things. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. And then he says, whatever you ask, and this is probably what sparked Peter's memory when he's 
sort of speaking this over this guy. He says, whatever, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And what does he do? He calls out for the healing of this man in the name of Jesus Christ, and he adds the little title of Nazareth, where he was from. It's so important for us to always remember that as we bring our petitions to the great throne of God, as we present our needs and the needs of those around us, whatever it is that we're praying for, when we present our petitions before God, that we always offer them in the name of Jesus Christ. How many prayers do we offer up that aren't closed with the name of Jesus Christ? How many times do we come to the Father and forget to do that? It's so important that that we remember to do so because there's power in the name of Jesus. John 14, 12 to 14, the passage that I just read says so. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do. When we seek God for wisdom, seek it in the name of Jesus Christ. When we seek God for direction, seek it in the name of Jesus Christ. When we seek God for healing, seek it in the name of Jesus Christ. Don't seek it without mentioning Jesus. When we seek God for mercy and grace, seek it in the name of Jesus Christ, who joyfully dispenses mercy and grace. When we seek God for the salvation of others, when we pray for those that we care about and love, those workmates, whoever they are, family members who aren't in Christ, seek the salvation of them in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of the Savior. When we seek God for provision because we need things, seek it in the name of Jesus Christ. There's a reason why Jesus says, do things in my name, because I'll make it happen if you do that. We've got to remember this. Not just live our lives and just offer things up or or declare things or petition without going through the right channel. Jesus is the bridge to the Father. Without him, there is no access. We must remember that. And so, when we come before God, we come through Christ and we mention Jesus Christ, who is the absolute apple of the Father's eye. He loves Jesus with a love that's just, it's, it's not comprehensible. And so we've got to bring things through Jesus, through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter and John told the lame beggar to stand up in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He told him to stand up. It's almost like he wants him to stand up on his own in faith, but I don't know if the guy had faith at this point. We know Peter had faith, and that's an interesting thing. We're so apt to say that faith is, uh, is an incredibly important part in, in, in getting things done. Like, you know, you, you, can't, you can't do anything without faith. It takes faith to do something. If you want something to happen in your life, you better have faith to do it. Well, what we see so clearly in the text here is that this man was healed by someone else's faith. Peter's. This guy didn't do something on his own and conjure up his own faith and spark a miracle through his own belief. No, he was being healed by the power of someone else's faith. 
So faith is a necessary component in getting God to act. But it might not be your faith that does it. It could be someone else's. Someone else might be petitioning on your behalf and something could happen because of their faith. And that's what we see here. It's so beautiful. And so he says, stand up in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. But the guy doesn't stand up. And then it says, Peter, what? Took him by the right hand and pulled him up. And the guy's like, he stands up. Peter pulls him up. And then it says, and the the man's feet and ankles were made strong. Obviously, they had to support his body weight. And then it says in verse 8, he leapt to his feet and began to walk. How does a man who has never walked before immediately start walking? You thought about that? Oh, it's the miracle, Pastor Phil. Yeah, I know. I've got three boys. I love them. They're like my own little football team. Except they don't play football. They play UFC all day and on, on each other. I watched all three of those boys learn to walk. None of them went from, what's up? No, it was, it was this incredible period of thumping their heads on tables and ramming into door jams and hitting the floor like a WWE superstar. I mean, it was, it was this process of trial and error and learning balance and, and learning coordination and, and, and falling and getting up and crying and mommy going, oh, he's got a boo-boo, let's shower him with everything. And daddy going, he'll be okay. Right, you know, that's what moms do. Oh, he's got a hematoma. I'm like, looks like a third eye, that's kind of cool. It was this process that they had to go through. And, and then, and then how, how, how many, have you ever heard of this? Have you ever just read in the paper that some guy who, who, who you know, and I, I guess it could happen miraculously, but, but how about someone who was injured in an accident and they lost the use of their legs? I don't know if I've read of a story yet where someone was just, just laid out like that and, and crippled and they couldn't walk and then all of a sudden they just flew off a of bed and just started leaping. I don't know if I've ever read that now. I've seen Benny Hinn, and it seems to happen all the time. I don't know about that, man. Right? Miracles are are rare. They're not like we don't dish them out like by the thousands. But I I don't know if I've ever read about something like that. But I have read stories where someone was injured, and then through a, a long and tedious process of rehabilitation and learning how to walk again and all that, that they... Their walking was restored. I've read lots of stories like that. And yet we don't have either of those scenarios in this text. We have a guy who goes from never being able to walk, not even knowing what walking feels like. I mean, how do you walk when you, you you know, you would at least, oh, I see, right? No, he just jumps up and he's like Fred Astaire. He's no, I mean, he's in the temple and he's throwing down. He's like a hip hop guy, right? I mean, this is incredible. That wasn't hip-hop. That was like 20s in hip-hop. I can't dance. Um, amen. <laughs> There's always one of them out there. Um, so he just, he just, I mean, he didn't have to have surgery. He didn't have to have rehabilitation. He didn't have to have uh, any of those things. And he just leaps to his feet. What an incredible thing that's been done here. What an incredible thing that's been done. I'm at 42 years old now. I, I haven't seen that before. I read about it in the scripture. This guy didn't do any of those things. And, and, and what's so incredible is what happens in verse 9. 
what happens over in verse 9. Okay, he's already leapt to his feet. He's walking around. This guy's pumped. He's got legs he's never used before, and he's using them like a dancer. This is cool. And what does he do in 9? He says he praised God. He praised God. That was the primary purpose for the miracle. That God would receive praise. That God would be worshipped. This might come as a shock to you, but that is the primary purpose behind salvation too. Oh, no, you don't know my God, Pastor Phil. He did it all for love. Did it all because of his grace. Well, I'm not going to argue with you. That's a truth. But there's a bigger truth. There's a meta-narrative truth. There's a, there's a foundational truth that all the other little things and the love and all those things stand upon. And that's the fact that God is about his glory. That God heals people for his namesake. That God saves people for his namesake. This is not a truth that we really grasp and comprehend in the good old U.S. of A. Evangelicals here don't get it because the primary message of the church is that it's all about you. That God loved you so much. I mean, it's, it's like preachers make the point of the Bible us. We're not the point of the Bible. Not at all. In our culture, what does our culture ram us with every day? 3,000 ads that say, you're worth it, you're number one. As Matt Chandler would say, you're varsity. And if anyone refers to you as anything less, flog them. Our culture bombs us with it, and, and, and unfortunately, the church does to some degree. And I think it's an inadvertent thing, but it's like preachers are just, it's all about you, it's all about you, it's all about what Christ wants to do for you, it's all about you, it's all about you. And all of a sudden, we become the pinnacle of all truth. And we become the main point to Scripture. The Bible teaches repetitively that God does everything for the glory of His name. This is a difficult truth for us to grasp, but it is a biblical reality. I, I included it in your program. There is a small half sheet in there that has about 26 verses that declare why God does what he does. And I put that there so that you could take it with you and so that you could keep that maybe in your Bible. And when you get consumed with yourself, and, and we do that, and there's grace that you could reflect upon why God does what he does. And that's great news because that releases you from having to be a superstar, from you having to depend upon yourself. That's all about God's glory, not all about me. Thank God. I don't like it when people make everything about me. Do you like that? Some of you like, yes, that's the number one spot. I'm Rocky Balboa. I want to be that person that's got the trophy. You know, and that's terrible. I don't want to be that person. Let's just go through these quickly. Follow along with your insert. God, <laughs> God created us for his glory. Ooh. Isaiah 43, 6-7. God called Israel the least of all nations for his glory. 49, 3 Isaiah. God rescued Israel from Egypt because he loved them. No, it says for his glory. 
Psalm 106, 7 to 8. God raised up Pharaoh to show his power and glory. Romans 9, 17. God defeats Pharaoh by the Red Sea to show his glory. Exodus 14, 4. God spared Israel in the wilderness for what? The glory of his name. Ezekiel 20, 14. God gave Israel the promised land for the glory of his name. 2 Samuel 7, 23. God did not cast away his people for the glory of his name. 1 Samuel 12, 20 to 22. I think I'd take more joy in that one than any of the other ones. That for the glory of God's name, he doesn't cast out those who belong to him. No matter how dumb you are. And I'm a dumb guy who sins repetitively and who makes mistakes. And you know what? If God was the kind of God that just forsook us the minute we do something stupid, I wouldn't be standing here. But for the glory of his name, he continues to pour out his grace and mercy on me. And he sustains my calling and he sustains my ministry and he sustains my family, my own personal faith and their faith. It's amazing what he does. Aren't you glad? He doesn't deal harshly with us, maybe the same way we deal with some around us, that when they wrong us, we just, three strikes, that's all you get. He doesn't do that. He's not a strike God at all. He does not cast away his people for the glory of his name. God saved Jerusalem from attack for the glory of his name. 2 Kings 19.34. Oh, I love this one. God shepherds his people for his name's sake. That's Psalm 23. If you read Psalm 23, it says all these amazing things that the shepherd does for the sheep. Who's the sheep? Us. But by the time you get to the end, if I do all these things for you, and at the end God says, why do I do it? For the glory of my name. That's why I lead you by still waters. That's why I bring you into green pastures. All of that for your care, absolutely, but ultimately for my name. And it's just over and over and over and over. God restored Israel from exile for the glory of his name, Ezekiel 36, 22, 23. Jesus sought the glory of his Father in all that he did, John 7, 18, we make a transition into the Son of God, and He's doing the same thing to glorify the Father. Jesus told us to do good work so that God would get the glory, Matthew 5, 16. Jesus warned that failure to seek God's glory makes faith impossible, John 5, 44. That's an interesting truth. If you're not a seeker after God's glory, your faith is in vain. Faith and God's glory go hand in hand. They're synonymous. You're going to produce an attitude because of true faith to glorify God. You're going to want that. Jesus, Jesus said that he answers prayers so that God would be glorified, John 14, 13. Jesus endured his final hours of suffering for the glory of God, John 12, 27 to 28. God gave his son to vindicate the glory of his righteousness, John 17.1. We ought to spend some time teaching on that one of these days because that's a powerful truth. God forgives our sin for his own sake. Isaiah 43.25, Psalm 25.11. Jesus receives us into his fellowship for the glory of God. Romans 15.7. That's so amazing. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is what? To glorify the Son of God. Glory, glory, glory here. John 16, 14, God instructs us to do everything for his glory. That's a great verse there, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. God tells us to serve in a way that would glorify him. 1 Peter 4, 11, almost done. Jesus is coming again. Why? For the glory of God. 
2 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10. Jesus' ultimate aim for us is to see and enjoy his glory. John 17, 24. God's plan is to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. Habakkuk 2.14. Isn't that a powerful truth? That at some point he's going to come, he's going to return, and everyone's going to know his glory? Such a cool thing. And then finally in 26, everything that happens will redound to the glory of God. Romans 11.36. That's a powerful and difficult truth. That everything that takes place in the world will ultimately redound for the glory of God. It'll all equate to the glory of God, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's a difficult truth, but it's a powerful one. All the stuff that's happening, we think that it's just, it's, it's not benefiting somehow, or it's not going to have some good result in the end. The Word of God promises that it will, no matter how disastrous it is. God, bottom line, God is very much about His glory His glory is the underlying motive for all that he does. This truth does not malign or minimize his great love, mercy, and grace. Rather, it is the foundation for which those things stand. And think about this. If God were not passionate about his glory, he certainly would not be passionate about healing and saving sinners, would he be? Why save us? Why have anything to do with us He does it for his namesake because he knows that those that he regenerates, transforms, heals, delivers from sin will glorify him with their lives, their hearts, their lips, their tongues, their actions. I'm so glad and I'm I'm so blessed that it ain't about me. That God has a bigger story playing out in the universe. And, and, that, and, and it's so cool because somehow by his grace, I can't wrap my mind around it because I know I don't deserve it, but somehow by his grace, he's called me just to be a little morsel in the grand story that he has. He's invited everyone that's in Christ here to be a part of it. But ultimately, it's all about him for his namesake. He's the superstar of the Bible. You get it? And that takes the pressure off of us to perform, to earn it, and to try to be good when the bottom line is we know that we really can't be and we've just got to rest in his grace. That's what we're called to do. Now, let me ask you this. Let me make it personal. What is your deepest desire? It's rhetorical. Is it to make more money? Is it to get married one day? Is it to have children? Is it to have good children? Not too happy with the ones I have. Make them better, God. Or is it to have your children one day move out sooner than later? I can't wait to get that spare room together for my doll collection. Love you. Go enjoy college. Is it to be physically fit? (laughs) Yeah, Shannon's like, right? Is it to be physically, have you seen how people are possessed with that? (laughs) Right? Just, you know, they're just, you ought to see my sister. She's like a female Arnold Schwarzenegger, man. She's absolutely, she competes. 
She's ripped. When I get around her, I'm like, hi. It wasn't me that chased you with scissors that one time when we were children. Oh, yeah. Oh. Is it to find your dream job? Oh, I got to get the dream job. Is it to own your dream house? Is it to have your spouse become your ideal mate? I've been praying for that for years. God, somehow work it out. I've been saying in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, hook him up. Because he's not quite where I want him to be. I'm perfect, though, but he's not. Don't we get like that? God, what's wrong with her? There's no way you would have brought this to me. Like you're like floating and have wings, you know. Is that, I mean, are those your deepest desires, to have more money, to get married, to have children, to have good children, to have your children move out, to be physically fit, to have your dream job, to have your dream house, to have the ideal mate? To, is it just, is that it? You see, here's the truth. If you're a Christian, your deepest desire should be to glorify God. It's not that some of those things aren't important. Having the ideal mate, which will never happen, is important. As long as you're the way you are, you'll never have the ideal mate. It's actually you that needs the help. But if you're a Christian, your deepest desire should be to glorify God. That is the mark that God puts on every true believer. If you believe that you are a Christian and are at the same time, unconcerned for the glory of God, you're probably not a Christian. The Holy Spirit that is ultimately consumed with glorifying God through the Son is the very Spirit that indwells a Christian. If He is all about glorifying God, then He's going to bring those attributes and those desires and those passions into the life of the person He invades. You see how it works? God's glory and true saving faith are synonymous. They go hand in hand. And so our lame beggar was healed in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and he leapt to his feet and began to praise God. He was healed and he worshiped. That's the fruit of the healing, worshiper. We don't see him worshiping beforehand. We don't see him praising God. That doesn't mean that he didn't know God or have some form of... We don't know, but we see that he was healed and he was up and he had mobility and he was leaping like a crazy gazelle and he praised God. Worship followed the healing. Let's look at... 9 and 10. And all, this is great, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Translation, the guy got noticed. 
people are going into worship and to make their offerings and sacrifices, and you've got this guy who's a gymnast in front of the entrance, praising God aloud. And people were like, isn't that Jimmy, the guy who laid on that mat for the last 29 years? What's he doing? That sounded very weird and Kentuckyish, but it, you know, it, it, there was something going on. They noticed him. They looked at him, and, 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 and the text says that they were filled with wonder and amazement at what, at what had happened to him. Now, wonder and amazement are great English words, but they don't quite capture the full magnitude of the crowd's response. Wonder is translated thambos, thambos. Thambos is a state of astonishment due to both the suddenness and the unusualness of the phenomenon. These people were put in a state of wonder because they were completely not expecting what happened to happen. It was inconceivable. They were brought to this state of wonder and this astonishment because of the suddenness of what had happened and the unusualness of it. There were people walking by going, I've never seen anything like this before. Can you believe this? Can it be real? Is it real? Look at his legs. And then amazement is translated ecstasies, and it's where we get the word ecstasy from. Ecstasies is a state of intense amazement to the point of being beside oneself with astonishment. We would probably translate that whole little thing, wonder and amazement, blown away. Boom! What? Are you kidding me? Are you seeing this? It can't be. We know this guy. They could not believe what they were seeing. They were beside themselves with amazement. They were so used to seeing this guy laying on a mat begging for change at the gate. And now he's leaping and walking and praising. This was nearly unbelievable. It was foreign. There may have been some present that were able to connect the dots of the lame beggar's healing with Isaiah's great prophecy. A couple of weeks ago, we learned that the miracles of Pentecost, that speaking in tongues, the gospel going forth through these foreign languages, we learned that those events, that that was playing out, was directly tied to Joel's prophecy in 228 to 29, which were all about the messianic age. It's like when the messianic age begins, when the rule and reign of Christ begins, certain things are going to happen. And the speaking in tongues and reaching people with the gospel in foreign tongues was one of the things that was prophesied. The healing of the lame beggar was another signifier that the messianic age had begun. Isaiah 35, 5 to 6. And this is incredible because I had Jen read all of Isaiah 35 earlier in our scripture reading. But 35, 5 to 6 says that at the onset of Christ's rule and reign, it says this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And listen to this. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. Wow. Is he talking about this guy? Yes. He's talking about other lame guys who would do the same thing? Probably. This was all foreseen. This was all predestined to happen. This was foretold. 
Back in verse 8 of our text, the lame beggar did what? He leapt to his feet. Now this whole event of this healing of this lame beggar, the dancing and praising God and leaping and jumping around, it was all a primer for what was to come. You might remember a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that God worked miracles to set the stage for gospel preaching. It was like an attention getter. It was, miracles were designed to grab people's attention, to bring the focus to an area so that something else could take place. And so this whole thing is a primer for what's to come. The apostles had the crowd's attention, and Peter is about to tie what they've seen with the lame beggar to Jesus. He's about to preach the gospel just as he had done in the in front of that marveling multitude on the day of Pentecost. And so the stage is set. We'll have to wait until next week to see it unfold. But I would encourage you to go ahead and read it. Maybe God would speak to you this week and, and point some things out to you. You're not supposed to just come here and hear the word of God taught. You need to be in it yourself. It's healthy for you. It's good for you. And so next week we'll... Continue to look at that, and we'll see Peter begin to preach and wrap it all up and tie it to Jesus, and he'll call for repentance, and it's just going to be awesome. I have some closing thoughts for you guys. Isn't that a great text? So cool. I, I say that every week. There's a redundancy, you know. Isn't that a great text? Have we ever come across a text that isn't great? I, even the chronological order of names is great. Come on. Hebab, Shubab, and Shababab gave birth to Baboombab, and it's just cool. There's meaning and significance in all the Habab's and everything, right? And Deuteronomy and Leviticus, yeah, they're good. They're just tough. As, as a new church, closing thoughts, as a new church, we've really got to think through how we minister to those around us. We want to be a church that ascribes God much glory through our efforts. The way that we can achieve this is by doing ministry biblically. And, and biblical ministry really has one ultimate goal, and that is to bring God glory and praise. And, and biblical ministry achieves this by being holistic. Holistic simply means to be concerned with the whole person rather than being concerned with just their soul or just their body or physical needs. Now the church, however, tends to put all of its emphasis on one or the other rather than on both at the same time. This happens when the gospel is, is preached and preached and preached and the physical needs of people are left unattended. Or it happens when the physical needs are met and met and met and the spiritual needs are left unattended. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, we can clearly see that he was very concerned with both the physical and the spiritual well-being of people of those that he ministered to. Jesus healed and fed people and he also preached the gospel with power and authority. 
And as a church, we must make it our steadfast goal to do the same, to be balanced in meeting needs and proclaiming the gospel. And in some cases, you have to meet the needs before you can proclaim the gospel because people aren't open to the message. They're not prepared because they're distracted by their circumstances, by their ailments, by their hungry, hunger. I'll never forget a story I heard years ago about a missionary who uh, went to Africa to do great ministry, and he had a ministry there, and it was flourishing. And he was invited to go speak at a small uh, church in the Serengeti. It was a little village church. And, and, and when he showed up to preach there, he was an invited guest by the pastor of that church and community. And, and when he showed up, the room was absolutely packed. And, and, and maybe there's somebody here who's taken a missions trip to Africa, but when you go there, the people treat you like royalty. It's, it's really strange. And, and so this guy showed up, and he was like, Bono, in the name, you know, and they were just like, oh, you know, they were just fawning over him, and, and it was interesting. And they were all gathered in this room, and the guy goes up to preach the gospel, and he begins and opens his sermon, and immediately he notices, and this is by his own testimony, he he realizes that there's people distracted in the audience, and they're chatter, chatting and talking. And so he just kind of tries to stay focused, and, and he's preaching, and, and he noticed there's more you know, little things happening out there and over here, and he's really getting frustrated. And he's happy about the fact that people have been fawning over him, but he's becoming very discouraged by the fact that these people aren't focused. And, and I'll never forget, he says, all of a sudden, about 30 minutes in, a guy gets up and just stumbles and falls in front of him. And he thought to himself, I cannot believe that these people have come to church drunk or taking something. And he felt so disrespected and so discouraged that he finished his sermon. And afterwards, he went to the pastor. And, the, and he said to the pastor, he said, Pastor, I've never been so dishonored and disrespected ever that I've preached in all of my 30, 40 years of preaching. What is going on with your people? And he says, sir, when he heard the people talking in the audience, they were trying to keep the pains of their hunger from being heard. And the man that you thought was drunk died. Because he's starved. We thought you were going to come with a ministry and try to help us. But instead, all you've done is preach to them. The man was shattered, devastated. You see, we have people in our community that have deep, deep needs. Deep needs. Or methdesto. We, we, I read a story in the paper the other day about a, a street that is now called the Devil's Street. And the reason why it's called that is because we actually have Mexican cartels in that area selling drugs and killing and murdering and slaughtering people. And it's a, only a matter of time before we start finding heads on the road like we do in Mexico. And the gang violence is out of control. And so this road is called Devil's Street. It is a demonic stronghold where life has no value. 
The divorce rate in our community is astronomical. Homelessness is out of control. There's just there's so many needs. And people do need the gospel. Because just to hand a homeless person a sandwich is great, but it just gets them through the day. What they need is hope in Jesus. You see, we've seen a terrific example of this in our text. Where a man who was broken, crippled, his immediate need was met. This man was given a new lease on life. He was given the gift of mobility. And the first thing he does is praise God. We've seen it. The apostles will go and continue to do ministry and they'll meet those physical needs and some people will be healed by their shadows and they'll preach the gospel. They'll work to meet the physical needs and most importantly, the spiritual needs. And as a church, we must do the same. It's not an easy thing. It's a challenging thing because sometimes it takes more time and effort and resource. Handing somebody a sandwich in the park and leaving is pretty easy. Sitting and giving them some sense of dignity and talking to them and listening to their stories and praying over them. One time, the guy who runs Tech Force, not my son today, but Cameron, he actually took, and he was single at the time, he took a homeless man to his house. He let him shave and shower and clean up, and then he took him and bought him $40 worth of groceries, and then he took him and bought him clothing. That's not the safest, smartest thing, I think, in this day and age to do, but I understand the heart behind it. That's a genuine heart and care for someone that transcends the boundaries of just feeding. I want them to know Jesus, and I want to improve their situation. I'm not suggesting that we go out and work a bunch of miracles. Maybe I'm a man of little faith. I struggle with that. I can't tell you how many bedsides I've been by and there was someone dying and I was just like, heal them, Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And then they they were gone. I'm not saying that it's not possible. But what I am saying is that we need to, regardless of that, we need to be compassionate and charitable with those around us and share the gospel of hope. And ultimately, when we do ministry holistically, when we do it right, when we're about meeting physical and spiritual needs, the result is greater glory for God. And it's a sustained glory for God. That's the kind of church that we need to be. That's the kind of church that Christ calls us to.